Good morning. It's such a joy to gather again this Lord's Day. As hot as it is, uh, we are we are glad that the Spirit will uh, still be with us, two or more gathered, and take our worship and make it effectually pleasing to our Father in heaven. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been studying through the book for a little bit now, and we are now in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and I will read 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now this is God's living and active and inerrant word. Let's go to him now in prayer and ask him to not only bless the reading of it, but our understanding and submission to it. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have enabled us now to not only come before you and to hear the reading of your word. But Father, we pray that you would bless now our hearts to be convicted by it, bless our minds and hearts to understand it, and Lord, therein work within us by your spirit to believe it and to believe Christ who is shown to us in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been following along with us in our study of 1 Corinthians, we have been examining Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And it is a letter where Paul is, again, reminding the Christians that they are called out from the world, separated from the world, and as such, they are called to Jesus Christ to be holy and separate and not influenced and infused by the mores and characteristics of the world but because they are in Christ, to be Christ-like. One of the problems that presented itself right from the beginning of the letter is this problem of divisiveness, a kind of tribalism and 
partisan party division where there were quarrels and fighting and groups saying, I follow this guy, I follow that guy, and there was a general lack of unity within the church. A unity which sadly undercut their witness of the gospel to the outside watching world. Insofar as the Corinthian church was not unified in their witness of Christ, they were unable to rightly witness to Christ. And so Paul writes to them, and he says, look, this, this problem has to stop. But the problem is actually not the deep problem. It's simply a symptom of something deeper. The deeper problem of your tribalism and your partisan divisions comes out of the deeper problem of not understanding the cross. For the Apostle Paul, it is the cross of Christ, the gospel, which shows us the true wisdom of God. And insofar as we get that right, says Paul, insofar as we make the gospel central, well, then we will be unified in our worship and in our witness and in our living together as the body of Christ. All this quarreling, all this divisiveness only shows that we've taken our eyes, if even ever so slightly, off of the gospel of Jesus. So Paul says up in chapter 2, verse 2, which we looked at last week as a kind of culmination to everything he's been arguing. He says, when I was with you, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we come to our passage this morning. The Apostle Paul is wanting us to focus our attention on the nature of that message. He wants us to see that the message of the gospel... Christ and him crucified, that that message is true wisdom. It is true wisdom, which always stands in contrast to the worldly wisdom that we see around us. And so true wisdom, says Paul, is nothing less than the revelation of the gospel itself, the revelation of Jesus Christ, and what he's accomplished in his life and in his death and in his resurrection and in his ascension. And that that revelation, it's come from God, and it is the wisdom of God. Look back at chapter 1, verse 21 really quickly. He says, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the wisdom of what we preach, Christ and him crucified, to save those who were lost in foolishness. So what we see Paul doing is making a connection between the wisdom of God, the wisdom displayed in the message of the gospel, and that that wisdom, that message, actually has the ability to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is going to argue. The wisdom of God, the gospel message, is actually wise because it has the ability to enable us to believe that message. What we'll see this morning is the source of this wisdom first. The source of this wisdom in verses 6 through 10. Secondly, we'll see how we get this wisdom in verses 10 through 14 how we get this wisdom. And third, we will see the effects of this wisdom in verses 15 and 16. So first, what is the source of this wisdom? In a word, it is a wisdom which finds its source in heaven, in the very being of God. Look at what Paul says in verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, Although it is a wisdom not of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. 
Paul understands that the revelation of the gospel is, first of all, notice this, it's a wisdom not of this age. You see that? It's from another age, a different age, another dimension. It's alien to this world. And verse 7, it has to be revealed to us. It has to be imparted to us. In other words, the gospel and the wisdom of the gospel is like this inbreaking of divine wisdom piercing itself into this world. It's a wisdom which alone can penetrate through the thick fog of spiritual death and unbelief, which shows itself everywhere in this world in unbelief of Christ. As Paul puts it in verse 8, the actual crucifying of Christ. What I want us to see here especially is that this was actually all planned by God. You see that in verse 7? He says, We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Paul is pointing out that God predestined that this was the way fallen, spiritually dead people would come to believe in Christ. In other words, it, it wasn't just that God had predetermined to save people through his son, Jesus Christ, but even more so, God predetermined to bring people to believe in his son through the Holy Spirit. He says that in verse 10, right? These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Now just pause for a moment and consider here the robust Trinitarianism of the Apostle Paul that Paul is elucidating for us that our salvation is through and through a Trinitarian salvation. That all of God in his triune glory would be wholly involved in the salvation of those whom he loves. God the Father has planned. The Son of glory has died. And the Spirit has revealed. Which incidentally is a very mysterious truth, right? It's something no one could come up with on their own. Like, like, this isn't a religion cooked up in the mind of a few bright individuals in the first century A.D. This thing called the gospel is entirely foreign to this world. It's alien. It's heavenly in its origin. Or as Paul puts it in verse 7, it's a secret and hidden wisdom of God. Now, Paul doesn't mean here that the gospel in and of itself is like some kind of enigma you know, where, where it's a puzzle which only bright and really intelligent people can kind of understand. No, he's already told us in chapter 1 that, that, that he's clear of the Corinthians who came to believe in Jesus Christ. Not many of them were wise. Not many of them were well-educated. They weren't the movers and shakers and policy makers of Corinthian society. What Paul means by a hidden and secret gospel is... Well, is what is translated in other places as the word mystery. It's the word mystery that's here. A mystery in the New Testament is not what we usually think of as a mystery, where it's like a, a whodunit kind of thing, and we got to figure out, you know, who, who killed so-and-so with a candlestick in, in, in the reading room. A mystery in the New Testament is something that was once hidden and misunderstood, but is now revealed and made clear. A mystery in the New Testament is something that was once hidden and misunderstood, but now is revealed and made clear. And that's the gospel. Think about it. Before the coming of Christ, 
God's means of saving a people for himself was not entirely clear. It was hinted at in shadows and in types, but by and large, it was hidden within the Old Testament. But now, in the coming of Jesus Christ, in his taking God's wrath for us and his atoning death upon the cross, what was once only a mystery in the Old Testament is now made abundantly clear. The lamp is no longer hidden underneath a basket. Who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross is a glorious revealing of God's full saving purposes. Do you want to know God and his intentions for the world? Look to Jesus Christ crucified. Incidentally, this is why Paul in verse 8 says that none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. On their own, they could have never understood who Jesus was and what he came to do. If they had, and if they could understand it, then Paul says they wouldn't have crucified him. Recall in your reading of the Gospels, I'm sure you remember this, when Jesus himself is being crucified and he prays to the Father, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In other words, even society's wisest people, the rulers and authorities who were tasked with leading the people, even they were oblivious to who Jesus was. He was divine wisdom incarnate. And yet these rulers, to them, he was hidden. He was the image of the invisible God, the brightness and the glory of God incarnate. As Paul says, he is the Lord of glory, and nonetheless they put him to death. What Paul is emphasizing here is that even though divine wisdom himself could be seen, could be touched, could be heard and communicated with, it took something more. It took something supernatural to, to, to bring people to realize and comprehend who Jesus actually is. But this is why in verse 9, Paul quotes from Isaiah 64. And he says, what does he say there in verse 9? What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man even imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This has been revealed to us by the Spirit. In other words, no one could have cooked any of this up. Human wisdom would never have come up with this thing called the gospel. Like, you are right with God by believing in a crucified Messiah. That's not of this world, friends. In fact, in the original Old Testament context, the prophet Isaiah is prophesying of a time when God will have to supernaturally intervene in the hearts and minds of men and women in order to help them, enable them to follow God. And so Paul takes this Isaiah verse, and, and he says, first, I'm applying it now. God is doing that now with the coming of Christ and through the ministry of the Spirit. But notice also, he's doing this for those who love him. Now, that's, that's an interesting phrase. Paul adds that in. That's not what Isaiah said in the Isaiah 64 passage. He, he kind of reinterprets it. That's a fascinating move that Paul does, and... I think Paul is saying here, I think he's saying it's not those who are really intelligent who know how to connect with God. It's not those people who are wise in the ways of the world. No, we relate to God and find entrance into the heavenly wisdom of God primarily through love. 
Our hearts have been so moved and melted by what we see in Christ and him crucified that by believing in him, we then begin to have our minds conformed more and more to Christ and growing in wisdom. The gospel takes what the world expects and turns it on its head. The world expects that we climb the ladder of spirituality by wisdom and thinking and reading and studying. And the wiser we are, the closer we get. And the gospel says no. And it turns it around. It's what St. Augustine encapsulated so well in his refrain that we do not understand in order to believe, but that we first believe in order to understand the question still remains, though, and, and it's the question to which Paul kind of turns to next. How? How do we believe? How do we come by this wisdom? How do we get this wisdom? His answer is that it is only the Spirit of God that a man or woman ever comes to partake in the wisdom of the gospel. So we see Paul's answer in verse 10. These things God has revealed us through the Spirit. This is Paul's great insight that he wants the Corinthians, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, I think he wants us to understand. That left to ourselves, there is absolutely nothing we could do to come to a clear understanding of God's saving ways. We are, without the Spirit, unspiritual. There's a lot of talk these days about being spiritual. Lots of people are quote-unquote spiritual, by which I mean, I think they imagine a vague kind of reliance upon intuition, you know, these, these, these things called vibes, which I, I don't know, I've never gotten a clear definition on what an actual vibe is. But you know what I mean, lots of people are into being spiritual. Even some Christians have sadly cashed in on this vagueness where we hear things like, well, I'm spiritual but not religious which I think they mean a kind of downplaying of the importance of being a part of a local church. But for Paul, there's really only one thing that places you within the category of being spiritual, and that is the person of the Holy Spirit drawing you to and revealing to you the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his basic argument in verses 10 through 12. The only way we can understand the wisdom of God, God who is spirit, is through the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. Do you see? Paul's point here is that because the Spirit, who is God, knows intimately the mind of God, it is therefore the Spirit alone who can reveal to us, spirit, uh, unspiritual blockheads that we are, He can reveal to us who God is and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's explaining to us that we don't seek and search and come to a discovery of God, but rather that God comes after us and discloses himself to us. It's God by his spirit who draws and brings us, verse 12, to understand the things freely given us by God. 
It's through and through a supernatural work of God. And the only way to respond to a truth like this, I think, is utter thanksgiving. Utter and complete gratitude at the undeserved mercy and grace of God doing for us what we, in and of ourselves, could never accomplish. What I find absolutely fascinating and beautiful is what Paul says in verse 13. Essentially, that the way in which the Holy Spirit works to draw us and to, and to reveal to us the deep mysteries of God and His saving purposes is through the simple preaching of the gospel. Like, that's it. Through a guy preaching from the Bible the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and look what he says. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul is saying, look, do, do you want to know how you came to be a believer? How you came to be a partaker of the heavenly wisdom of God and to know the wisdom of God? Hint, it wasn't because you were smarter than anyone else. No, it was through my preaching. And if you recall, Paul himself admits in describing his preaching, look back up at verses 3 and 4, it was weak, he was trembling, it was unimpressive, it was not at all very eloquent. Simple, unimpressive gospel preaching. God uses that. And insofar as Paul rightly interpreted, that's the word he uses, right? He says, interpreted the scriptures, or what he calls spiritual truths, and through the Spirit to close them to the church in Corinth. Well, then he was used by the Spirit to bring heretofore spiritually dead men and women into new life to get it their eyes were opened their hearts were made alive and for the first time in their lives they now believed in jesus christ and came to know god j.i packer one of god's greatest vessels used during the last 100 years j.i packer just passed away this past friday Perhaps his most well-known and, and most used book is his book, Knowing God. If you've not read it, you ought to. I, I think I read it maybe every three years. In that book, there is this line, a well-known line, where J.I. Packer says, What matters supremely is not, in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that God knows me. His point is that it is God's special and gracious knowing of me which has first enabled me to know him. That's Paul's point here. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We cannot on our own wisdom, which is really no wisdom at all, come to know God. Oh, but the goodness and the mercy and the grace and the love of God and that he has come to know me. Me? In his gracious wisdom, he knew me before the ages. Verse 7. He sent his son, the Lord of glory, to die for me. Verse 8. And by his spirit and through the preaching of the gospel, he disclosed himself and his saving grace to me. Verse 10. Verse 13. Dear friends, 
look here and see a God who in his triune glory has so moved and given himself to making sure that he will have you to be his own. How ought we to respond to this? Well, if you're here this morning and you are indeed a believer in Jesus Christ, that is, God the Father has drawn you by God the Spirit to come and put your faith in God the Son, if that's you this morning, then rejoice. Utterly rejoice and worship to the God who has saved you. In the wider context of what we've been looking at in the book of 1 Corinthians, that also means that you are now enabled to love others as more important than you. Insofar as we understand that our salvation, our being in Christ and being in the body of Christ is all of God, that it was God's grace that made me to partake of the wisdom of the gospel of Christ. Insofar as we get that, then I will have no room to look down on other people within that same body of Christ. Do you see? The clickishness, the tribalism that began to divide the Corinthian church, Paul is saying here, stop. Don't you see that none of you were wiser than anyone else when you became a Christian? Every one of you came into this thing called the Christian faith from the same position, spiritually dead. You were all ignorant, at least when it came to spiritual truths. No one had true wisdom. But now, because of God's grace to you, now you do. And so remember, it was God who granted to you that wisdom. Put your boasting away. Put your pride away and remember you are all one in Christ Jesus. He is your wisdom. The Corinthians will later begin to separate themselves again based on now their spiritual gifts. I'm better than you because the Spirit has given me this gift. How vain we are. We do it too. We'll get there later as we continue to work through the letter. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer. Maybe you're visiting Greenbelt Baptist Church for the first time and you just don't buy all of this. How should you respond to what the Apostle Paul is saying here? I think the answer is to believe in Jesus Christ now. To realize that God in His grace has you here right now in order to hear about Jesus Christ and to listen to a sermon about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. The answer is go to Jesus now. Go to him who is the Lord of glory. That title, the Lord of glory. It's a title which Paul uses to signify that this man who hung upon a cross and died, he was also at the same time the divine son of God himself. Believe in that crucified Lord of glory who in becoming a man gave himself over to a sacrificial death which he did not deserve, but which he freely undertook on your behalf. As the Lord of glory, Christ was sinless. He was without guilt and he had no shame to his name. And yet in love, the Father sent him to take the death and experience the wrath that all of us deserve. On the cross, God the Father poured out his full hatred on his only beloved Son. And so the man, Jesus Christ, died. But he also got back up. And in his resurrection, as he overcame death, he declared, as it were, that all of our sins were finally dealt with. Jesus got back up out of the grave, but our sins didn't. 
They stayed buried, and so they can no longer be used against us as evidence of guilt. Only in so far as you come to believe in and put your trust in Jesus Christ. And so, dear friend, I pray that you would come to believe in the risen Savior of your soul, the Lord of glory, who stands now alive at the right hand of the Father, and that you would cling to him by faith. Perhaps you're, you're thinking, I don't know, I don't want to believe in Jesus. Right? Like, if I could be honest with you, Pastor, I'm not even sure I'm compelled right now to believe in Jesus. This just all seems like some quaint and awfully behind-the-times religious stuff that I don't know. I'm just, I'm not sure I'm ready to buy into right now. Friend, I, I get that. In fact, I was there myself almost 20 years ago. In fact, I think Paul gets that too. Look down at verse 14. Look what he says in verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, yeah, you don't want to accept the things of the Spirit. Indeed, Paul says you can't. Why? Because the verse says you're not a spiritual person. You are natural. You are still of this world. Now, I, I get it. I get it. You, you could be offended here by me uh, referring to you as unspiritual. But look, I think, at least when it comes to someone who is not a believer in Christ, I think this truth, as Paul is just laying it out here, I think this truth ought to frighten you. That is, I think you ought to read this and say, well, huh, why don't I want to believe in Jesus? That's concerning. I'm reminded of an account I heard from a pastor who preaches in London who after his sermon one morning, a young man came up to him, an avowed unbeliever, and said to the pastor that he didn't want to believe in Jesus now, but he's sure that he would later in life, before it was all too late. To which the pastor said, no, I don't think you will. And the guy said, no, yeah, I will. I just want to live life a little bit right now, but later, when the time is right, then I will believe in Jesus. And the pastor said, prove it to me. Believe right now. To which the young man says, well, I, did you hear me? I don't want to believe right now. He says, well, come on, do it. If you think you can do it, just do it. Show me right now. You're able. Believe in Jesus. Getting a bit frustrated, the young man says, I don't want to believe in him right now. To which the pastor says, so what evidence do you have that you will want to down the road? Friend, I hope you see that the grace being described here by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is the grace to have your will and your desires freed. The chains and the bonds which cord your heart and your desires and wants in, in a kind of enslavement. Outside of the Spirit of God, you are enslaved to your own sinful wants. You only do what you want to do. We tend to think that that's freedom, don't we? But you're not. You only and always do what you want to do. I dare you. Push back against that. And as it stands, you show that in not wanting to believe in Jesus, you are instead wanting to rebel. You and your desires, the desires of your heart, they rule your decision making. And friend, if that is you this morning, I plead with you to pray to God and ask him to give you a new heart. 
Ask God to give you new desires and new wants, a new want for spiritual things, preeminently a new want and a brand new desire to want the spiritual truth of Jesus Christ for you. Insofar as you don't want to believe in Jesus, there's no evidence, friend, that you'll ever want to believe in Jesus. And outside of Christ, all you can expect, like the rulers of verse 6 who are doomed to pass away, all you can expect is the eternal doom of God's judgment. Does this at all concern you? I pray it does. I pray there's, a, there's something of a shaking at this truth. And if it does, I pray that God give to you his spirit and that he illuminates your heart to see and want Jesus Christ. If there is even the slightest degree of uneasiness at this message, just the, the littlest prick, a mustard seed prick within your conscience, oh friend, that may indeed be the grace of God's spirit. Do not harden your heart, but follow and go to Jesus. Which leads us now, as we come to a close, our last point. What are the effects of God's wisdom? What are the effects of believing into God's wisdom? Paul's answer, verses 15 and 16. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. His point is simple, though admittedly it has far-reaching applications which we cannot explore this morning. But his point is that now, by believing in Jesus Christ and becoming one with Jesus Christ, we become partakers in all that Christ is for us, including the mind of Christ. We have, says Paul, the mind of Christ. Not a mind like Christ. Not something that's, that's becoming more and more like it. We have the mind of Christ. And with this, the spiritual person judges all things. Now, he himself is judged by no one. Why? Because he's already been judged in Jesus Christ upon the cross. He's free from all condemnation. He's free from all judgment. Whenever the devil is over your shoulder and saying, you've done it again, you wicked sinner, in Christ there is no more judgment. But he's also saying, we judge all things. Not in the sense that we become judgmental. Sadly, too many Christians are judgmental. That's not what he's saying. What he means is that we become discerning. We have discernment. We can judge between the truth and a lie. We can judge between spiritual truths and spiritual realities and everything else that is of this world. He says, believers, having the mind of Christ, believers come to know the gospel of Christ. We get it, and we keep on getting it and knowing it, and we can read and make sense of God's word, and so we grow in our spiritual appetites and in our spiritual comprehension. We judge rightly every doctrine, every, every movement, every news story through the lens of the wisdom of the gospel. Who is understood the mind of the Lord. Paul uses here another Old Testament reference, which was originally meant as a rhetorical question. Who has understood the mind of the Lord? The answer is no one. He's God. Well, unless that is, unless that is we have the mind of Christ, who is God for us. Friends, here is the ground and the foundation of our church's unity, the ground of our existence as believers, the ground of our very being on into eternity forevermore.
we are recipients of God's grace. Grace given to us to partake in the wisdom of the Spirit and to have the mind of Christ. Let's pray. Let's pray together, church. Dear Heavenly Father, we just praise and worship you this morning for the grace of your gospel that you have given to sinners, enemies of you, Lord, who do not know you and hate you. Lord, you have called us out of that darkness with just the folly of the gospel. You have put to shame all of our logic and our wisdom, our humanly ideas of what man should do to reconcile themselves to God. And you have called us to know the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, who was sent to this earth to die a perfect death, Lord, and be the sacrifice for those who have faith in your son, Lord, for their sinfulness to be reconciled to a righteous and holy God and their sins to be separated from them as far as the east is from the west, your word says. And the Bible says you would remember our sin no more when our faith is in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, that gospel, that apart from your Spirit, is unbelievable. And our natural mind, Lord, hates the truth of your Word, which gives us a Savior. It does not allow us to work our way to heaven or work our sins away, Lord, but calls us to rely on you and you alone for the forgiveness of our sins and for the salvation of our souls. Lord, I ask that you would give us the mind and the heart to pray that way for our brothers and sisters, our family, our friends that do not know the gospel, Lord, that we would know that your spirit alone and your son alone is in control of your church and your people. And by that, Lord, we can pray even right now. We pray for the people here in this congregation who do not know you, who do not put their trust in your son, Jesus Christ, Lord. We can pray that you would change their hearts this morning, that by your spirit and hearing the word preached by Pastor Unthank, that you would change hearts, give them new hearts, take away their hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh that hear the truth of the gospel, truth of your word that you've given to us, Lord, and conform us to the image of your son in faith and a holy and righteous God. Lord, we pray this morning for unity in our church, in this faith in Christ, that you've brought together all sorts of different people, Lord, with different opinions and ideas and ideologies, and Lord, you've given them one mind in the Spirit, in Jesus Christ, to know your Son and the folly of this gospel and the truth of your word. And Lord, that we would be united by this faith and by this truth and by your Son, and that we would love one another and serve one another. As it says in 1 John, Lord, we are called to love one another as a body, that we might be united as one church to serve and worship you all the days you've given us on this earth, that we would be faithful servants to you. Lord, I pray all these things for our church this morning in your name, in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.